Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, Ampersand Magazine publishes stories and journalism about environments, natural and constructed, and our place in both. The magazine is an offshoot of Forterra, an organization dedicated to conservation and creating sustainable connections between human society and nature. As the publishers say, the ampersand binds the two reasons Forterra exists, people and place. The magazine and its mission came to life recently in an evening of storytelling, poetry, and entertainment. In this presentation, you'll hear the voices of radio hosts, dog trainers, and chocolatiers, poets, foragers, artists, and designers, all passionate about our sense of place here in the Northwest. This event took place at Town Hall Seattle on November 12, 2015. Thanks to Florangela Davila for our recording. Please note one thing that will make sense later. Samson took 25 seconds to find the scat. Here, MC Luke Burbank kicks off the evening. Hello there, Town Hall. How's everybody doing? Welcome to the second Ampersand get-together. My name is Luke Burbank. I'll be guiding you all through tonight. You might be wondering what the plan is. Well, we're all here tonight because of a great organization called Forterra. Some of you may be familiar with. And Forterra works really hard to preserve this part of the country we live in and also to preserve the sense of place that we all love so much about this part of the Northwest. And my um, association with this part of the world goes back to when I was four years old and we moved here uh, from Northern California. It was the week before Mount St. Helens exploded. And I was a young kid and not great with geography. So when I saw the cover of the Seattle Times and saw the picture of Mount St. Helens exploding, I assumed it was down the street and that I was pretty much going to die. And I remember thinking, you had a good run, Burbank. Um, (laughs) It was a very terrifying time for me because one of my main fears as a child was hot lava. Um, I assumed hot lava or quicksand would be one of the two ways that I died based on the cartoons that I watched, which is, which is foolish now looking back on it because what we realize is that the greatest threat to any of us at this point is accidentally eating gluten uh, in a muffin. Um, it's the not-so-silent killer. Um, My, uh, my family moved to the Green Lake area, which is pretty much where I grew up, um, but not the fancy part of Green Lake. I grew up essentially on Aurora Avenue at 77th and Aurora Avenue, and I went to uh, an elementary school, which now I'm told is uh, quite the destination, Daniel Bagley Elementary School, but got some Bagley bees in the house. Well, when I started at Daniel Bagley in the 1980s, they taught you a poem on your first day of school because they'd been having some real problems they were trying to address. And the poem was, share a toy, share a ride, share the feelings deep inside, but never share a hat or comb, or lice could make your head their home. Um, (laughs) 
Um, my dad had a, a little sign shop on Aurora Avenue called Signworks, and I went by the, that part of Aurora the other day, and I have to admit I was feeling kind of wistful because between 77th and 85th on Aurora, everything has changed. Every single business that was there has turned into recreational marijuana. 100% of them are now recreational marijuana, which as we know in the life cycle of any retail location is the end point. Starts off as a blockbuster video, maybe a furniture store, and then like a salmon going to spawn, it eventually becomes recreational marijuana with a possible stop as a karate dojo in between. I went to Nathan Hale High School, graduated as a proud Raider. Um, when I was a senior, I became the father of a young daughter because I felt like it was time. Um, <laughs> a lot of you know what I'm talking about. You just get to the point where you've really done the whole junior year um, thing and you're ready. And then I went on to uh, the University of Washington. I ended up working at a great public radio station here in town, KUOW. And um, yeah. It wasn't until I moved out of Seattle, though, that I realized what an amazing place the Northwest is. Um, I became a reporter for NPR, and so I lived in, in New York and L.A. and a lot of other places. And what I didn't realize until I got to those cities was that there isn't anywhere like this. And one of the things I think that's so amazing about the Northwest is the way that you have this sort of miracle of nature interacting and intersecting so closely with the miracle of human development Actually, the way that I came to be hosting this thing tonight is I was hanging out with Florangela Davila from Forterra, who put this whole thing together, by the way. We should give her a little round of applause. She told me I would get an Applebee's gift certificate if I said that, so pay up. Florangela and I were out on Lake Union talking about this thing because I have an old classic wooden boat because I like making terrible financial decisions. And we were on this little boat on Lake Union, and we were just marveling at this beautiful body of water that's right in the middle of this city and surrounded by all this design and creativity and energy that goes on. And the thing about this part of the world is, if you look in any direction, you will see a construction crane. Okay. But if you look past that, you'll probably see a pho place. But if you keep, like, really look a little further, you will see... The most beautiful natural scenery, really, anywhere in the country. And it's, you don't have to go to the top of a mountain for it. You don't have to go to the middle of the woods. It's actually woven through our cities, and it's woven through the people in these cities. And those are the people that we have tonight to talk to you about this sense of place. You want to hear from them? All right, let's get started. Sorry, I have entrance music wherever I go, so. Uh, I'm also a DJ at a public radio station, KEXP. My name is John Richards. Thank you. I was here last night for two hours talking about music and death. Uh, it's a talk I do every year. Uh, it was a very serious talk, and I'd just like to say the five minutes I'm going to do right now is a vacation right now. This is... A brilliant evening after talking two hours about death. It is so good to be here talking about my community. Um, 
One of the songs that you just heard was from Run DMC. I do playlists. It's what I do for a living. I live in this city, and I love it. I love everything about it. Even the hour and a half drive it took me to get five miles to get here this evening. And this is a dream come true for me to be able to bitch about Green Lake a little bit in front of all of you. That's my talk. I've lived very close to Green Lake all of my life. Just like Luke mentioned, uh, I live just a few blocks from it right now, as a matter of fact. And one thing I see when I see Green Lake is I see it as a symbol of how we live in this city. And that includes all the signs and symbols telling you to go one way, yet 10% of everybody is going the wrong way. No matter what I do, I can't help these people from understanding you're going the wrong way. And I do what we Seattleites do best. I pass those people and I bitch about it five minutes later to my wife never confronting these people and the wrong that they are doing as they cross Green Lake and go the wrong way. But if you start to pay attention to the people around Green Lake, you really start to learn some things. They really aren't bad people. They just are in the moment. I've actually not been a Seattleite. I actually, for a second, stopped being one and asked a few of these people, and they just didn't think it was for them. They just felt like they're in the moment, they're with their family, and they're just going the wrong way. If you pay attention, you'll see volunteers actually cleaning the lake. You'll actually see people are doing all right and helping each other out. You'll hear music and you'll see people running as they listen to songs like this. Frightened Rabbit is this band. It's called Swim Into You Can't See Land. Now, Frightened Rabbit might work as well because, let's face it, the rabbits are gone. I probably could have picked a, a, a song about geese as well, but that's a whole other story. Those poor bastards. Uh, removed long ago from Green Lake. We swim Green Lake when we shouldn't. We have to shower and use hydrogen peroxide and clean out our ears and our eyes when we're training for a triathlon, but yet we still swim it. Toxic algae forms. We don't clean it. We wait for it to get better, and we still watch those fishermen out there mercifully fishing the waters of Green Lake and possibly eating those fish later, which really scares me, especially as a vegan. Um... We see those signs go up, and yet we can't do anything about the ducks who don't know any better but to swim in it. And we continue to go around in circles, like this song from Soul Coffee and in circles. We walk around and we see people we don't know, but we see people we recognize now. The guy who gives free Spanish lessons around Green Lake. I love that man, and I never want him to stop, right? The busker who tells the worst jokes on God's green earth is there. You know who I'm talking about. The Rat City Roller Girls who rule and are spinning every day around their training. The cat, have you seen the cat on the shoulder bike guy? That's impressive. The hand organ guy, we keep thinking he's gonna have a monkey, he doesn't have a monkey, but he does have the hand organ. And every day we're both annoyed and excited that he's there, he's like an old friend. There's people with packs training to climb Rainier and the homeless walking the park with all their belongings, yet are still doing laps around the parks and not just stopping, but actually seeing the rest of us as we pass. When we ride our bikes, like this song, the bike song from Mark Ronson, I run the bike, I run the lake almost every day. It's 2.8 on the inside, it's 3.2 on the outside. I can run it in 21 minutes on a good day. I can uh, walk it, well, it all depends on my two-year-old. That's how long it usually takes, he decides. I'm told if you do the 3.2 miles on the outside, though, you're actually breathing in more pollution and doing more harm to your body than good. Yet there we are running the lake on the outside track. 
Just like a lot of us, I didn't notice bikes on the outside until my son started riding a bike. And then I got serious about how we treat each other on that trail. Because it's important that we go the right direction. And we have to actually speak to each other and make sure that we're going the right direction. That we're, that we're, we're respecting not just ourselves, but each other. And to me, the parks are a place to do that. I was asked what my favorite place was in Seattle outside of my work at KEXP, in my home with my children and my wife. And I've been going to Green Lake for 20 years. I would sit and write postcards at that lake to my friends back in Spokane, making fun of them because they were still in Spokane. But really, really scared that I was in the city I didn't quite understand yet. I would run and think about my future in the city. I watched Sean Kemp dunk a basketball at the courts of Green Lake in one of my better moments of my life. I watched our city grow up there. I've moved many times in Seattle like a lot of you, but I've run it, and I've continued to use it as my place to get away in Seattle. I've dealt with my depression around that lake. I've dealt with my relationships around that lake. I've watched as my son has grown up around that lake. I've watched paddleboarders. I've watched runners, swimmers, the wading pool, ducks, geese. I've watched the disabled go around that lake. I've seen the senior citizens cross around that lake. These gathering spaces are so important to us, and places like Green Lake show our humanity, and they show what this city is so great about. There's candles for those who died at Hiroshima every year around that lake. There are pianos in the park. When the sprinklers went off and nearly destroyed that first piano in the park, our citizens gathered and covered that piano. A small theater, countless runs for cancer, and a of mine who was attacked when they were having terrible attacks on women around that lake was attacked one morning while listening to my show, and someone on a bike stopped and saved her from what could have been death. Those are our people. Those are our people looking out for one another. Green Lake represents for me all the good there is, and it tells me 10% just aren't quite sure what to do. They aren't sure to go the right way. And every time I go to Green Lake, I know I'm going to run into somebody that I know and love. And I swear to God, if they're going the wrong way, I'm going to kill them. <laughs> I love that lake. I love this city. And as long as we have these parks in our cities, it gives us reason to pause. It gives us reason to reflect. And we can put up with all the development that's going on around us. I thank you for listening to me tonight, and I hope to see you around Green Lake on the inside track of the park. Thank you. Hi, good evening, everyone. My name is Julianne Ubigo, and this is Samson. We are both employees of the Center for Conservation Biology. It's part of the University of Washington part of a unique program called the Conservation Canine Program. Samson, sit. Good boy. I'm here to tell the story of Samson tonight. <laughs> okay, sit. Stay. As someone who's traveled quite a bit, he's wondering what we're doing up here. As someone who's traveled quite a bit, I've always been really, really proud to say that I'm from Seattle. Down. And I think it's because Seattle, to me, represents individuality and passion and people who aren't afraid of being different. And I'm here to tell the story of Samson tonight because Samson is a little bit different. Right now, he's a little anxious because I have his favorite thing in the world tucked up under my armpit. It's a ball. Every conservation canine handler walks the fields doing wildlife research on a daily basis with a ball tucked into our pocket or under our arm. Down. 
Now, to Samson, the fact that I have this with me makes him think that he's going to get to go to work, which is his favorite thing in the world. Quiet. Okay. (laughs) He loves his job, and he helps us discover more about endangered and threatened wildlife all over the world. Samson's story starts on the streets of Seattle. He was a homeless dog, deemed crazy, deemed obnoxious, and untrainable. You get... (laughs) Now, I was hoping to come here and prove that wrong, but (laughs) He, uh, he does have a personality, and his personality makes him perfect for the job that he has. Samson? down. We have 18 dogs in the program. Our training facility is outside of Eatonville, Washington. And all of the dogs in our program, down, relax. All of the dogs in our program have one thing in common, and that's that they're crazy about playing fetch, crazy about that thing over there, the B-A-L-L. We hate to say the word too much. Now, we select dogs who are deemed... (laughs) High five. We select dogs that are deemed unadoptable. Because no matter how hard the shelters try to train certain behaviors out of them, they just won't give it up. They're passionate. And that's, I think, what makes me so proud of him. Uh, we adopted him in 2008. I don't know the, first, the story of his first, first four years of life, but I do know the story of his life since that day we picked him up at the shelter in 2008 because we've been working together ever since. Samson and I have been... <clears throat> he doesn't do this too often. <laughs> Samson and I have been working together. We've gone to San Diego. We've gone to... Um, British Columbia, Alberta. There's his crazy face. That's him doing what he loves to do. And um, I am so proud to be his co-worker in the field. He was considered crazy, but we found that the assets, the, the things that he had that made him, um, the downfalls that he had that the shelter described of him were actually assets to us. And at the University of Washington, we use these dogs to help find the scat of wildlife, of endangered and threatened animals. And it's the drive of him wanting to find that ball that helps us find incredible amounts of data in the field every day. Um, Samson is really hoping to get to show you tonight what he gets to do on a daily basis. I'm going to try very hard to make tonight as fun for him as it is for all of us. So we're going to end tonight with a very quick demonstration. It's why he's barking. It's what he really wants to do. Um, he's going to find a little sample that I've placed on the, the stage. But <laughs> the little sample is a vial. It has the, Pacific, the scat of a Pacific pocket mouse in it, which is the scat is about the size of a sesame seed. So it's 
extremely small. Um, before we do that, I'd just like to thank everyone for inviting us here today. We really um, feel honored to be part of wildlife research, and we also are very honored that we are able to rescue dogs who have a high-energy drive and an interesting personality, find what others can seem deem to be crazy as assets that help us in our wildlife conservation every day. Thank you so much. Give Samson a round of applause after he finds his cat. Are you ready? All right. Good evening. I don't think I can follow that. I'm so in love with that dog that I can't talk right now. My heart's going crazy. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Janie Miller. Um, I'm one of the poets um, talking to you this evening. Um, I, I truly can't concentrate. I'm so overfilled with joy at what just happened. There's like scat and there's a dog. <laughs> That's all you need to be an environmentalist. What I wrote to you to say tonight is that I've spent a truly irrational amount of my life wondering how we as a species are going to cope with such a rapidly changing present and future. How we can live through a sixth extinction and the realities of political and environmental refugees and a rapidly changing climate. But when I get to experience nights like tonight with this many people joined um, through ideas of place and regionalism and commitment to place and commitment to the people in those places, I feel a healing. How many of you, and you have to answer, with a show of loud activist voices, have pulled a carrot from the ground. That was, that was better than I thought. I don't even need to read the poem because you know what I'm going to say. That sound of the snap, that sound as you're pulling the carrot out of the ground, that soft snap that happens, it's a sound that I carry with me. I'm going to read you a poem called Carrot. Planet spins toward today's end in the hulk of summer's harvest. Yanked the carrot right out of the dirt. Snap, snap went the cords of its life. The planet and I fed. The greens brushed my arm like so many families' hands missing from my life. Their underground tethers. I bite deep into the carrot's core, snap, and the mulch of sweetness stings me. Revealed in the carrot's body is Fibonacci and the sequences of the living. See them in their radiating ancestors like stars. 
I wonder how its spirit left, if the roots took themselves back to dirt, like time's retrieval, or if it was rental, this orange death I stole, a car, a boat, home, or body, wandering this whole life long. At the time of this poem, I had lived in a densely populated neighborhood of Seattle for three years, Capitol Hill. And in the gravel parking lot of our apartment building, my partner and I built a food box. It was a beacon for us, those 11 inches of dirt, our most direct connection to the planet. By the second year, we had become pretty good growers. We produced kale, potatoes, snap peas, carrots. All summer, I watched them grow, and as summer hit its peak in mid-September, it was time to harvest. For me, as a minus-two-generational not-farmer, many generations removed, Harvesting was hard. Scissor blades on kale, the snap of the peas, the scooping of the golden potatoes. Hardest was the carrots. The morning I harvested my first carrot, the snap from its root encapsulated every loss I had ever felt. Lost family members, places, even memories. Snap. It all came back again. I stared at the dangling limp root for a long time, following the string to the past, then took a bite. In that bite was all the life that had ever lived, a sort of beauty of living I had never imagined. Then I remembered the ends of the roots still in the dirt. And if that carrot was ever mine to begin with, if anything we ever have is truly ours. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Janie. Um, I think... The planning mistake that we made was uh, last night was John Richards' show, but two nights ago was the Endangered Species Scat Fest. And I think that gave Samson the dog a lot to think about. <laughs> Next year we're going to do that differently. Um, we want to mention, too, that Chris Jordan, who's on the program, is not going to be able to make it tonight. I believe he heard he was going to have to follow a dog and tapped out, which I don't blame him at all. I have good news, though, and that is that the Evergreen Mountain Bike Alliance builds, maintains, and advocates for mountain bike trails across our state, and they're currently working on multiple projects in the Skycomish area, including a new trail at Alpine Baldy. Be a part of the biking community by joining Evergreen today. Hello, my name is Colin Fogarty, and I love Seattle, in part because it's such a great public radio town. So if I, you'll indulge me, can we have a round of applause for our friends at KEXP? And then 
Of course, I want to give a shout-out to our friends at KUOW. But today, I want to give a very special round of applause. Please join me in thanking KPLU for all of their excellent, excellent work over the years. We are with you, and we always will be. So, on with the show. My name is Colin Fogarty, and as I said, I spent 20 years in public radio. I should hug the mic, shouldn't I? I shouldn't walk away from the mic. And I told stories on public radio. That was my job. And I told too many stories to count. But what I always found was that the stories that I was most drawn to, the ones I could never forget, were the ones you could not see. The stories about invisible things. The stories about things that surround us always, but you cannot see. Stories about history. And at some point I realized history surrounds us always. If you listen to every story on the radio, it is always rooted in history. We just have to listen and see, and that's what drew me to Confluence. Confluence is a donor-supported nonprofit that connects people to place through art and education. And it's a series of six art spaces along the Columbia River system. And I'll tell you about each one. Five of them are by the celebrated artist Maya Lin, who shot to fame as the artist behind the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. Yes, you can applaud. <laughs> That's great. But don't forget... One of those projects was also uh, done by this man, John Paul Jones, who is not the bass player for Led Zeppelin, but he is an amazing architect. Thank you, John Paul, for being here. All of these sites, these confluence projects, are an attempt to reconnect people with the story of the peoples who lived here for thousands of years before Lewis and Clark happened through this, era, this area. And it's about the, eco the ecological and the cultural changes that happened in the 200 years since the expedition. In short, this is the story of the Northwest. And when you think about what it means to be from this region, what do you think of? The beauty, the recreation, the hiking, maybe it's windsurfing. No matter what it is for you, we share a love of this place. This is our home. And appreciating its grandeur and its beauty is one way we connect to this place. But what if I told you this windsurfer, having a hilariously good time, was windsurfing over the most sacred and culturally significant place in the Northwest? Bar none. The most sacred and culturally significant place in the Northwest. And I'm talking about Celilo Falls. It was a place known as the Wall Street of the West because it was a center of commerce, a center of culture for thousands of years. Celilo Falls was six times, six times more powerful than Niagara Falls, the most productive fishing grounds in North America. And in 1957, it was flooded by the Dalles Dam. It's one of 32 dams along the Columbia River system. History surrounds us. Some of the electricity lighting this room likely comes from the Dalles Dam. So let's fast forward to 2001. Anton Minthorn fished Celilo Falls in 1956 when he was a young man. And in 2001, he was the tribal chair of the Umatilla Indian Reservation in northeast Oregon. And he had seen dramatic and ec uh, economic and ecological uh, uh, progress made by northwest tribes, and he helped lead it. And in 2001, there was a big debate going on about whether and how the native voice could be included in the discussion about all the undaunted courage demonstrated by those great explorers, Lewis and Clark. Hey, they met people. 
That's what Anton was thinking about. And what's more, those people are still here. And so he had a simple question. What is a legacy? What is their legacy? Sure, but what is our legacy? And the result of that discussion that ensued was confluence. First, they enlisted Maya Lin, and what she was interested in was not only the cultural and historical changes that occurred in the 200 years since Lewis and Clark, but also the environmental changes. By the way, these pictures, these stunning photos are by Glenn Nelson, so let's hear it up for him. Cape Disappointment on the Washington coast at the mouth of the Columbia River is where Lewis and Clark reached the Pacific Ocean and where Chinook people lived and fished. Maya helped to redesign the park and create a working fish-cleaning table that is is etched with the creation story, the Chinook creation story. So as you are processing your fish, you are reminded that people have been fishing and living there since time immemorial. Next is the Confluence Land Bridge at Fort Vancouver at the confluence of the Klickitat Trail and the Columbia River. This is the site designed by John Paul Jones. It reconnects the community with the river, a connection that had been broken by railroad tracks and a freeway. Moving east, the Confluence Bird Blind at the Sandy River Delta, not far from Portland, where Lewis and Clark could not sleep one night because they heard so many birds and where a 1,500-acre wilderness is being restored today. Inside the bird blind are the names of 134 species documented by Lewis and Clark and their environmental status today. Still moving east in Pasco, Washington, at the confluence of the Snake and the Columbia Rivers, Maya Lin designed seven story circles that reconnect people with the cultures and the flora and the fauna of a spot that's been a gathering place for thousands of years, not just a state park. It is a sacred place, and we should always be reminded of that. Along the Snake River near Clarkston, Washington, it's just across from Lewiston. Get it? Clarkston, Lewiston. So it's at the confluence, or near the confluence, of the Clearwater and the Snake River. Myelin designed a listening circle based on a Nez Perce blessing ceremony performed there in 2005. They created a spiritual landscape, and she built that into the land itself. And finally, Celilo Park near the Dalles, Oregon. The final confluence project will be an elevated walkway inspired by those traditional fishing platforms that will take you to where Celilo Falls still exist. We know this from sonar. But they're underwater, silent, and invisible. And more importantly, it will take you to Celilo Falls in your heart. We hope to be done with this project in 2017. History surrounds us. It's up to us to listen and to see. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, I'm going to talk about uh, something that is uh, dear to all of our hearts, and um, it's really strongly dear to uh, the indigenous people of this area. And um, it has to do with some things called indigenous gifts. And they influence you all the time here in Seattle and in the Pacific Northwest. And they, they center around ancient gifts, that come from a lot of experience over thousands of years. 
And it comes from verbal gifts that are passed down from generation to generation. And it also comes from emerging gifts that are happening around us all the time here in Seattle. So I'm going to speak a little bit about that because that had a lot to do with the Confluence Project and Maya Lin. But first, I want to read this to you. Look look at this poem. Uh, Anybody know who Chief Dan George was? Yeah. Well, he's a Coast Salish Indian man, and he was in a little big man, and he was dressed up like a Plains Indian, but he was north of us from here. He's Coast Salish. And he was a very good poet, and he said... The beauty of the trees, the softness of the air, the fragrance of the grass speak to me. The summit of the mountains, the thunder of the sky, the rhythm of the sea speak to me. The faintness of the stars, the freshness of the morning, the dewdrop on flowers speak to me. The strength of fire, the taste of salmon, and the trail of the sun and this is to me most important, and the life that never goes away, they speak to me, and my heart soars. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Um, My heritage is Choctaw and Cherokee from Oklahoma, and my mother and grandmother said, anything you do, John Paul, make sure you pay close attention to the natural world, the animal world, the spirit world, and the human world. And in each one of those areas are a whole bunch of things that you can work with. And if you pay attention to those, just like that poem does, then life will never go away. Um, So I'm going to read a little bit and just show you some images. The beauty of trees speak to me. The softness of the air speak to me. The fragrance of grass speak to me. And they come from the natural world. Seasons and cycles, cardinal directions, and plants, and day and night. Let's see if I can keep it moving here. Uh, more of that poem, the summit of the mountain, the thunder of the sky, the rhythm of the sea, speak to me. That's here. That's why we live here. <laughs> That's really important. And then there's the animal world, other living things that live with us here. Even in the city, they live with us on Green Lake or on Puget Sound. And they share the land, and they have a lot of power and strength. And we live in an area where they're expressed strongly in dancing and singing and that sort of thing. And they're related to wild places. And the faintness of the stars... The freshness of the morning and the dewdrop on flowers speak to me. And a lot of that has to do with the spirit world. I'm not talking about church. I'm talking about creation and renewal, seasonal things, the spirit of rocks and dirt and soil that make carrots. <laughs> and about birth and wellness and I call round places. And the strength of fire, the taste of salmon, the trail of the sun. We get to see that right here in Seattle every evening over the Olympic Mountains. 
And that has a lot to do with our human world. And what we, what I like to say the most important thing is in that is transfer of knowledge. That transfer of knowledge is a gift that we pass down and that indigenous people have been passing down for generations and generations here in Puget Sound. So I'm going to show you a little bit of a, a something of the land bridge, which is one of the confluence projects. And um, it was at the first civilized place in the northwest, <laughs> Fort Vancouver. And um, the Hudson Bay Company was there. And why was the Hudson Bay Company there? Because it was a good place to trade. <laughs> it was... It was, a, it was the Klickitat Trail came over from eastern Washington, and it was a good trading place, and so Hudson Bay was a trading company, so they located there in that location. And then over many, many generations, Fort Vancouver lost its connection to the river by an intercontinental railroad and a highway. And so when Native people came to this place, like they do for ceremonies now, um, they couldn't, get, they couldn't land their canoe on the beach and get to the fort. Uh, they had to go up into the city of Vancouver, about five or six miles, and come back around. So like that uh, trail, we were reconnecting Fort Vancouver and the land with the Columbia River, and that's what the, the bridge is all designed about. It's designed about that reconnection. So I'll go along here. If you're ever flying into Portland Airport, look down on the Vancouver side, and if you see this curved bridge, that's the land bridge. There it is looking sort of downriver. It's a very organic place. It has a lot of stories that are being told about the land, the water in the area. And it goes between, on the left side here, the Continental Railroad and the highway on the right side. And it was a place where trash was dumped. And we were able to make it a place that connected land. And there's various uh, words for land for, from the Chinook jar jargon that are expressed here. And we were able to make it a connection with uh, the, the native culture in the area. And I wanted to show you in the grand opening, there was a few people there <laughs> that day. And uh, it's a pretty special place that Maya and Lynn and I got to really have a fun thing doing that's part of the Confluence Project. And uh, it has to do with a life that never goes away. And they speak to me. Life never goes away. It's here. No matter what we do to it, it's here. And my heart soars. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Super grateful to be here. I'm pretty sure I came out of the womb loving the wilderness, and by three months old I was camping with my family on the north fork of the Skykomish at Troublesome Creek. My dad fished and my mom watched after us kids, and this is how it went for days on end, fishing, getting wet, 
hiking, and really just setting up home outside. Upon returning back to the suburbs of good old Kenmore, my dad would smoke his catch over Alderwood, and to this day, the smell of smoking wood chips gives me pure, visceral joy. In my adulthood, I've adapted my own relationship with the outdoors and have come to respect the wild sometimes more than humanity. The sound of a river making its way over granite, turning corners over and under trees. The smell of baking pine needles in the high Sierra, blue sky above, no sound to be heard. My wetsuit-clad body diving under salty waves, nothing in the distance but the horizon and maybe a seal. Dripping cedars and moist ferns, the scent of wet, earthy, mushroomy goodness. The ever-quiet, majestic desert with her crystal granite rocks and cactus for days. These places all have a story, and I love to listen. For as long as I can remember, I've been gathering love, energy, and inspiration from these wild, natural places and using her fuel to write my own story. Every rock, feather, crystal, Bone, seed, branch, and leaf collected is a reminder of the most beautiful system I have witnessed. I took a year off after high school, and my only agenda was to be a snowboard bum in Tahoe. It was on the mountain where I discovered my interest in food. I moved back home, went to culinary school, and learned as much as I could about organic farming, composting, and big agriculture. I discovered what I didn't want to support in the food industry and what I was determined to accomplish in the food industry. And I learned just how much I love chocolate. I'll never forget the day I discovered that chocolate comes from the seed of a fruit. It blew my mind. I was working at Canlis, my only pastry chef job, and that day I knew I wanted to become a chocolatier. With chocolate, I could dive deeper into the social aspect and environmental aspect of farming, and I could use chocolate as my art form. Chocolate was my life, but still I had a deep-rooted cosmic womb that yearned for nature, and so I brought nature into my work. As an homage to Northwest tradition and to my family, I found that chocolate is the perfect ingredient to smoke over Alderwood. I began collecting rocks, sticks, and earth to use in my chocolate sculptures and infused wild roots, leaves, and medicinal herbs into chocolate. And this was just the beginning of bringing the wild into my desserts. After working as a chocolatier for years, I started my own organic dessert business, Hot Cakes. I began at the Ballard Farmer's Market selling take-and-bake molten cakes in mason jars. <laughs> Staying true to my love for the woods, I made sure these cakes could be taken on the trail and baked around a campfire. It became vital that my desserts would be woven into my passion for nature. Hotcakes was about four years old when I began to question what my career was doing to better preserve nature. Supporting organic farmers has always been non-negotiable, but I've wanted to go deeper into supporting wildlife and wild places. I began to feel like chocolate and the food industry didn't fit into my heart any longer. That there are wild animals and forests that need saving, and I felt stuck in an industry that sometimes felt like it's more a part of the problem than it is a part of the solution. But food has been my life, and abandoning it also didn't feel right. So I've decided to put hotcakes to work. 
as a vehicle to educate myself and others and support those who are fighting. I've created the Wilderness Collection, four caramel sauces infused with ingredients you would find on a hike, like stinging nettles that I harvest myself, juniper berry, white sage, and campfire smoke. Our smoked chocolate chips and s'mores kits are also a part of this collection, and 10% of the sales are donated to various wildlife conservation organizations. <laughs> so here I am, coming into my 35th year of life, and I'm beginning to feel like I understand what it takes to always live from my heart in its ever-changing ways. And for me now, and as far as I can tell forever going forward, my heart is for the preservation, appreciation, and love for the wild that exists around us. Thank you. Hello, Seattle. My name is Nikki McClure, and I grew up I grew up in Kirkland. I'm an East Sider. Still live on the east side of Olympia even. Um, and I grew up looking at those amazing Olympic mountains. They were always white, even in summer. And I would fall asleep every night watching and waiting for the Queen Anne lights to fall into sink. And then I'd fall asleep. I moved to Olympia 30 winters ago. There I started cutting paper and making paper cuts. And I make books and I make a calendar every year. I've been making a calendar since 1998. That's a lot of Novembers and Decembers and Januaries. I think a lot about winter here. It is my work. Today is November 12th. The tide is falling in Seattle. It was high at 421 and will be low at 1112. It's a minus one in case you want to go clamming. The sun set at 437. Yeah. The moon, the moon set at 5.42, and it's dark. Winter is here. This picture is myth. Persephone ate six pomegranate seeds, and here there will be no snowmen, no sleigh rides, no bells jingling. Here we will have snowberries to glow in this gloaming. Winter is dark, wet, dark, wet. This darkness matters, and this wetness matters. It draws us in. It pulls us into all those coffee shops and to our home, and it creates industry. There's a nightly making and dreaming and scheming of impossibilities, and we work into the night. The New York Times is read three months late, then crumpled up and burnt. No one needs a jeweled butterfly watch. No one. There are so many jeweled watch ads in the New York Times. But we do need butterflies. How many did you see this summer? Work. In winter, my work begins. I rake up remnants of summer. These leaves are beyond big. The hands of giants that have made by capturing every particle of light and transforming it into solid gold. And I hoard it. My investment strategy is to rake a pile as tall as a tall enough, maybe I might need one of those cranes, to be a 20-unit apartment tower that overlooks the Salish Sea. You can move in next week. The rooms will be ready. 
And here I will burrow down. The warmth of my work will match the warmth of the leaves. We will decompose together. We will recompose, rewrite, and rewrite our story all winter long. This is my work. I will hide beneath these leaves all winter. Winter. It is the work. It is the dark. It is the gathering. Buffleheads. Buffleheads returned October 31st to Bud Inlet in Olympia. I've been watching and hoping ever since the leaves fell and the raking began, and I worry that maybe, maybe there be no buffleheads this year. But they're there now. Their bright white heads made brighter against the gray day. Thirty winters ago when I moved to Olympia, there were thousands and thousands of western grebes whistling and diving and feeding in huge rafts. Two years ago, I saw one grebe. Last year, I saw none. Zero. This year, on September 27th, I saw six. And is this hope? Six is not 3,000. Six is not 500. Six is not even 100. But it is six. And those six western grebes are beautiful, and I will make a picture of them those red eyes slipping under the water. But is this hope? How can we note this dwindling if we're not sitting on the beach waiting and hoping? We're driving in cars with the windows too fogged up to see. We have to use those squeegees here. And it's dark and we want to go home and make dinner. How will we know there's no buffleheads if we don't even know what a bufflehead is? If we don't know that they always arrive in late October after a summer spent in the north on a lake, raising their babies in a hole made by a flicker? How will we know if we don't stop to notice what we have here now? This is Thrill. This song, Sparrows, stopped me on a foggy morning walk, and I stayed for its concert. Or was it something else? Was it communicating joy, sorrow, thrill, hope? There were butterflies, but there were less. The winter birds have returned, but there are less. My song, my song will be of the six, the hope of the six. My song will be of waiting on the beach. My song will welcome the buffleheads. My song will be raking leaves and decomposing and burning that news for warmth. That is how I will make my winter here in hope and in making. But what is the winter hope to Californians or Pennsylvanians or people in Louisiana? What is hope to them this winter? And what is hope to you here in Seattle? How will you spend this winter here? Will you walk the beach? Will you know the tides? Will you sing to a western grebe? Will you gather by a fire and dream and conspire impossibilities into action? Winter is here. Make it warm with your work. Thank you. Wow. That was Nikki McClure with a clear message. Winter is coming. No word on if Jon Snow is really dead. Um, 
Half of you got that joke, half of you were like, I don't even have a TV, and I can't be friends with you. Um, as I'm learning up here, our actions have enormous impact. Folks, the average American contributes 28 tons of carbon a year into the atmosphere, but thankfully you can do something about that. Join individual small businesses and big companies already giving back to the earth through Forterra's Evergreen Carbon Capture Program. When you sign up, trees get planted here in Washington State. Forterra and its field partners have already planted 11,000 trees. Yeah. Which offsets one Humvee. So, it's actually two. I'm sorry. This is one small step for all of us, but it's a giant one for this place. You can sign up online for that. And if I understand right, Florangela, tonight is carbon neutral. Is that true because of that? So have another wine after the show, everyone. This is carbon neutral tonight. About six years ago, I realized that I was going to die. I blame my kids for this. I was in the backyard with the sun on my face and a beer in my hand. Riley was four and Kale was one. The two of them were rolling around in the grass, frolicking in the way that little ones do. Do you know the feeling when you can practically see a child growing older before your very eyes? It happened to me that June afternoon. Those precious little muffins growing up so fast. And it hit me all of a sudden that we're all growing up at the same rate. And that someday, down the road, eventually, I would come to the end of my trajectory. Around the same time, I enrolled in the master's program for architecture at the University of Massachusetts. Two things made me, slight, made me slightly different than my peers. The first was that I was older and had children, which meant I was laser-focused and never, ever going to spend the night in the studio. The second was that I came into the program obsessed with decay and decomposition. I don't know if it was my childhood playing in the forests of New Hampshire or the worm digging I did with my kids in the compost bin. But whatever it was, I wanted to try to weave these essential yet unappreciated processes together with architecture. For various assignments, I photographed dirt, collected roadkill, and designed homes heated by compost. And thanks to my dear, dear children reminding me of my own mortality, I also spent lots of time investigating the options for our bodies when we die. Specifically, I was looking at what the built environment does or doesn't do to support the dying and the grieving in our culture. What I found was that for an innovative society, we are really uninnovative when it comes to death. Cremation and conventional burial, which are the options most readily, in the United, most readily available in the United States, are wasteful and polluting, so that the very last gesture that most of us will do on this earth is toxic. But it wasn't just the fact that we pump our bodies full of formaldehyde-laden fluid to embalm our dead and emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to cremate them that bothered me. It was the fact that from the moment we're born, 
We move through this world soaking up nutrients from the sun and the air and the food and our water. This earth sustains us, and when we die, our bodies are full of potential. The problem is that our current funerary practices destroy that potential. It's amazing when things come together, isn't it? Back in architecture school, as I was wrestling with all of this, a friend told me about a method that farmers have been using for decades to dispose of animal carcasses. By simply covering a dead cow or horse in wood chips, the natural process of decomposition is accelerated, and in six to nine months, a nutrient-rich compost has been created. In other words, the cow turns into soil. Composting is about crafting the perfect environment and letting nature do its job. By creating the right ratio of nitrogen, animals, and carbon, wood chips, and by adding oxygen, we invite the microbes and beneficial bacteria in. These tiny creatures, the same ones that embalming is designed to inhibit, by the way, break down tissue, muscle, bone, and teeth. Molecules are rearranged. A new material is created. The design challenge became became how to take the incredible process of composting animals and turn it into something that would be appropriate for us as humans. What I've designed is a way for us to give back to the earth that sustains us. It's a system that transforms our dead into compost. It's a ritual for laying our loved ones to rest, and it's a model for a new type of architecture in our cities where we can both honor the departed and celebrate our place in the natural world. Thanks to a wonderful fellowship and the support of 1,200 Kickstarter backers, the design idea that began in grad school has morphed into a nonprofit organization. We aim to disrupt the entire funeral industry and make death care beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. It's called the Urban Death Project. And I might be a tad bit biased, but I think it's the future. My kids are 7 and 10 now. They just keep growing. We've lived in Seattle for three years, and I am so incredibly grateful to be here. If there's anywhere that human composting can flourish, it's in this sweet city. (laughs) It's in this city where not composting your food scraps is illegal, and where our sculpture park displays a huge rotting tree on purpose. This is a city where people understand the power of the natural cycles and the deep connection that exists between life and death. So thank you for having me. Good evening. So I get to talk about something near and dear to me, to all of you, our home here, and particularly how fish, which is my love and the science that I work with, along with watersheds, how fish think about how to get home, but also how home has been written a little bit about in music, and how those two may actually have some connection. 
But first, as a scientist, I like to think about context, and I like to think about the big picture. You are here. You're on a small planet, a very important place. You're doing things to protect that planet, and um, it's a really important thing. You see a lot more dark than you see light out there. Um, But we're getting to know this universe a lot better, and I think it's going to help us protect our home a lot better. And when I think about the universe as a science geek, I have to think about a date that I think is the most significant date that I can imagine just about for humans. August 25th, 2012. Does anyone know that date? You should. That was the date that Voyager 1 sent out in 1977, left our solar system, and entered intergalactic space and is still sending us a little something back here, back to home. E.T., call home, eh? We have a lot of other voyagers on this earth, and these are salmon, salmon that go for years and thousands of miles on huge journeys, and they come right back to these rivers that we have here in the northwest, the rivers that we're spending time and money to kind of protect for salmon and wildlife and all the other things we enjoy. But it wasn't that long ago that we didn't really know what was driving them, how they got home. But about 40 years ago, or back in the 1940s, I should say, uh, a Dr. Art Hassler, I heard him actually give this talk in the 1980s when I was a young up-and-coming fish biologist, um, was hiking the, upland, or the Rocky Mountains uh, in the highlands and came around a corner and a breeze came at him and he smelled the smells in that breeze, and it reminded him of home. And home was nowhere near. And it occurred to him, maybe salmon, maybe they use smells to get home. And the rest is kind of history, if you know anything about salmon and stuff like that. In the 1940s, some very famous experiments were run right in here, this area at the University of Washington. And it showed that salmon, in fact, use those smells to come home. So, now... We know of smells a lot in in a lot of songs about home, but there is one song sung by tenors particularly that I think maybe captures how a salmon might feel. Uh, A very well-known songwriter, Italian songwriter, Bonnie is going to help me a little bit here, Ernesto De Curtis, in 1902, wrote a beautiful song. Now, I read that he wrote it so that he would get his brother to come back to him to this beautiful little town along the Bay of Naples. But I also just read somewhere where he also wrote it so that the mayor would hear the song and know that there was some bad smells coming out of the bay. I don't know. Either one of the, given Italy, either one of those could be true. But if I was a salmon, I think this might be a song that would make sense to me because it's a song about look how beautiful this water is. It makes me so inspired. And look at this garden and the smells that come off of it from the orange trees. How can you say you're leaving? Come back. Just like a salmon, come on back and spawn. So we're going to sing a little uh, Torno Sorrento for you. Video mare quanto bello Spira tanto sentimento Come tu a chi tiene mente 
Casce tacco fai suona. Guarda qua chi sto ciardino, siente siesti scuri arance, nu profumo a così fino, in tal cuore se ne va. E tu dici ho parto a Dio, talunta ne dasci tu cuore, adosta te. dell'amore tieni o cuore non torna ma non a me la sa non dormesto tormiento torna sorriento Wow. The dog talked to me earlier and said, I'm not following that. <laughs> that, was, that was incredible. Is there anywhere else you want to be in Seattle tonight, you guys? Man. I, I was starting to think, though, that the accordion was just a tease. Like, I... I think Chekhov said, if you bring an accordion out in the first act, it better go off by the third. <laughs> Thankfully, we got there. Um, we are really lucky to be here tonight and to be in the Northwest. The, we've got the beauty of the neighborhoods, of course, the recreation, the food, the culture, the opportunities. Change, of course, is coming, though. It always is. And we want to make sure that we work together to handle it right. So become a member of Forterra, if you can, and help support their work to sustain this very special corner of the world that involves science and opera and all of the great things you're still about to see. Good evening, everyone. It is a great pleasure to be here this evening. Thank you to Florangela for inviting me. Um, it's a great honor to be able to read a poem as the first um, appointed civic poet of the city of Seattle. This one is titled, Invitation. I invite you to come along on a bicycle ride, the whip of the Green River, early September, when its water teems with pink salmon and bank anglers dream their fishy dreams and you, rolling past, wishing slack tide for the anglers and flood tide for the fish. I invite you to lie on a blanket stretched under the heart-shaped leaves of a little leaf linden tree. Let breath yield to grass, branch, bark. Release unaware your secret lusts. Pistol and stamen, flutter of wings, 
legs in shorts, vegetable sap, ecology of desire, midsummer heat, volunteer park. I invite you to Caramel City, a place where every cash register displays hand-rolled, hand-wrapped, or neatly packed salted caramels luring your willpower to ruin. I invite you out to breakfast, 6.30 a.m., Fisherman's Terminal, fried oysters and a pile of hash browns. Between the large windows and boats ensconced in fog, invisible to the naked eye, marked only by a column, the architecture of lifetimes made and lost at sea. I invite you to Alki Point, a una noche de verano, mar y arena, luna y estrellas, suave el aire sobre tu faz. I invite you to buck the trend. Next time you pass someone by, resist the unfriendly pool. Don't look away or down. Caput indifference. Melt the freeze. Breach the gap. I invite you to stand on a South Beacon Hill bus stop on a vaporous and chilly 40-something rainy winter's day and wait and wait <laughs> and wait for a bus that's again late, late, late. I invite you to a house renovation project where your only job is to order the paint. And so you visit a Soto paint store where 15 minutes go by and no one behind the counter bothers to greet you. You don't even get a sideways glance. Others get called, receive their orders, ask questions. A large sign announces color trends. Invisibility is no paranormal trick on your part. You don't ever choose to make yourself invisible. Hey, you want to say, do you all want fries with that? I invite you to a party in Ballard, where a woman expresses regret at hearing the news you're moving to the southwest corner of the map. We'll never see you again. She says in a self-congratulatory way. What you say is, oh, there's a whole bunch of us living down there having a good time. You should come down sometime. What you don't say is, hey, do you want fries with that? I invite you to shop for grapes. Take the red ones, says the man stocking produce. You lean in to grab a bag. No, not those, he says concerned. Those are organic. The regular ones are here, pointing to a different stack. Taken aback, you say nothing. But you want to say, hey, do you want fries with that? I invite you to orbit emerald chaos at the Seattle Center Satellite Fountain. Watch water jettison, then fall, sparkle, and splash the way you wish your doubts would simply crash. I invite you to Hillman City, 
where strangers turn to greet you, sometimes even with a smile. I see you, their gesture says. You, you, you. Tall oaks line the stretch of Rainier Avenue and leaves trail, splutter, flap after the seven, rambling downtown, leaving behind the periphery and the heart. Thank you so much. If I were really cool, I'd tweet this out right now, keeping it real time. But I have something more important to show you. Family pictures. This is my mom, my brother, my sister, and me. My mother is from Japan, and that's where I was born. Missing from this picture is the guy who took it, the guy my brother and I used to tease as the white guy at the end of the dinner table. Yes, my father's white, I admit it, to prove he's out here in the audience somewhere. Yet, he's the reason I became an outlier. And I didn't just say outlaw, I said outlier. Which is to say, a person of color who grew up hiking and camping and continues to love and wants to protect the outdoors. Talk about a minority. My father was my scoutmaster at Troop 14 in Seattle, which is where I met my oldest, well, let's keep age out of this, my longest standing friend, Gordon McHenry, who I'm proud to say is the president and CEO of Solid Ground. Yeah. Right on. He's the one on the left, by the way. <laughs> and in case you hadn't figured it out yet, Gordon's black. And there were other black kids in our troop and other Asian Americans and Native Americans. So being outside with people of color seemed normal until, dun, 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 Gordon and I went to Seattle University. And there we had to practically drag our classmates of color into the outdoors. I can still remember the nervous tension in the car rides out Somebody would say, we're all going to get lynched, man. You know, like the guy in Aliens. And um, I'd look in the back seat at our friend David Black, who actually is black. And he'd always start humming this tune. Right? Thank you for getting that. This all percolated in the back of my mind until a few years ago when I started hiking and photographing the outdoors. And the more I did this, the more I noticed the outdoors looked a lot less like the outdoors of my youth. And more like this. You know, cold and white. <laughs> or like this. I actually saw three Confederate flags just outside North Cascades National Park recently. Not very inviting if you're a person of color. Which is really counter to the way this country is going, let me tell you. In two to three decades, the majority of the United States is going to be non-white. There's no stopping this. 
Already there are more non-white babies than white babies being born every day. Before you know it, most of this country is going to look like this. You know, devilishly handsome and younger. (laughs) But this impending non-white majority does not have a relationship with the outdoors. Remember, I'm an outlier and an outlaw. Gordon is an outlier. My daughter, Sasha, is an outlier. It's not baked into our cultures anymore. It's been baked out. Every community of color in America can point to a negative connotation to the outdoors that was introduced to us by our own country. Think about it. With African Americans, it's slavery. Japanese Americans, internment. Chinese Americans, coolie labor on the railroads. Latinos, migrant work. And Native Americans, shoot, they had the whole outdoors just taken away from them. And then had to suffer the indignity of having all the mountains, lakes, and rivers renamed after white guys who supposedly discovered them. I wrote an opinion piece this summer for the New York Times. You might have read it. To set it up, I reached out to people of color in southeast Seattle, which is where I grew up and still live. It's the most diverse part of our city. It's also a place where we look at Mount Rainier every clear day. So I asked my neighbors, you look at this mountain all the time, have you actually been there? All but one said no. And they asked me, well, what's even up there? I told them, yeah, I told them there's a national park up there. And they said, well, what's a national park? Is it a lawn? Are there picnic tables? See, they're trying to equate it to stuff they're used to seeing in the city. So then they say, well, why should I drive one, two, three hours for that? I'm all good here grilling some dogs, and here I have a bathroom. God only knows what's up there. Here's how deep this runs. I'm doing a story about a pair of bilingual Latino interns in a national park out west. I asked them, how do you talk to your parents about what you intend to do outdoors? And Nancy says, there aren't even words in Spanish to explain herself. We never talk about this in Spanish, you know. There's no discussion about going hiking, so it's una caminata. And then I asked my parents, you know, how do you say hiking? You know, what does this mean? And I, like, acted out, you know. They're like, oh, una caminata or uh, tienda de campaña. Like, these words, I have never used them in Spanish because there's just no discussion about this at all in my family. And Sal, like Nancy is the child of immigrant parents who came from Mexico to work several back-breaking jobs in the field to, to give their children a better life. They can't even wrap their minds around what Sal is trying to do. So you choose to sleep on the floor? You like that? We started from that for you not to be doing that, and now you're doing it because you want to. So it's a weird concept for them. So now I'm sounding the alarm. Because because of the way this country is headed and where our planet is headed, diversity in the outdoors is a self-preservation issue for all of us.
So where's the urgency? How long are we going to wait to start protecting our future? See, the Civil Rights Act was signed 50 years ago. Well, I know it's closer to 51, but I'm rounding down. Same as the Wilderness Act. And where are we on civil rights after 50 years? Where are we on wilderness after 50 years, for that matter? If we apply that 50-year timeline to our planet, and assuming we only get as far in 50 years as we did on civil rights and the wilderness, in 20 to 30 years, when an indifferent, non-white majority takes over, this planet's already cooked. So I keep wondering, what's going to be the tipping point? Believe me, no one ever does anything about diversity and inclusion unless there's a gun put to their heads. In the 60s, there was black power. 50 years later, there's Black Lives Matter. Folks start, finally start getting the point and say, oh my God, we better do something about this. So what's the tipping point? Where's our Ferguson for diversity in the outdoors? Where's our Watts for that matter? You guys remember, burn, baby, burn. Come to think of it, it seemed like this state in the entire West was burning to the ground this whole summer. Last I looked, there have been nine and a half million acres that have burned in this country in 2015. Isn't it about time to say every life matters? If you can't breathe, it doesn't matter what color you are. Can I get an amen on that? Thank you. So right here, uh, I'm Langdon Cook, by the way. Uh, thank you all for coming out tonight to support Forterra and Ampersand Magazine and these amazing presenters that we've had. Um, right there, that's a blue chanterelle. Uh, and you could find one yourself if you went hiking up on the spine of the Cascades where they like to hang out in the volcanic soils. Uh, this was illustrated by Catherine Mose, uh, and if you opened the magazine to page 33, you don't have to do it now, but in the safety of your own home later, uh, you will find a beautiful spread uh, by Catherine of five different uh, edible wild mushrooms that you could hunt for here in our backyard and cook up back at home. Uh, I've been here now almost exactly 25 years in Seattle. And uh, I've grown a little moss on me, decided to stick around. Uh, I picked my first wild mushroom and ate it uh, about 25 years ago after a, a backpacking trip on the Olympic coast. And uh, since then, I've just been adding new varieties to my plate. Uh, and at a certain point, uh, it became my subject matter as a writer. Uh, I write about wild foods. But more importantly, I write about the wild people who are out there harvesting these foods. And so, uh, you can see this headline here. Uh, I came home one day, and I told my wife uh, that it was time that I needed to get out on the mushroom trail. I'd been picking enough mushrooms for myself, but I needed to get out there because there were people, unlike me, a recreational hunter, there were people who were professionals, who were picking mushrooms commercially, 
for profit. And I needed to get out there and investigate this hidden economy that was going on in the woods of the Pacific Northwest. And she gave an unequivocal no. Uh, Like many outdoorsy folks, uh, hikers, bikers, mountain climbers, she'd heard the rumors. She had heard the rumors about uh, the scene going on, this sort of carnivalesque scene of wild mushroom harvesters out there in the woods and the territorial armed pickers and the uh, running Wild West gunfights in the woods. And, uh, and she wasn't very thrilled with the idea. But, you know, I was already smitten. I was too far gone. I knew that I had to get out there and find out just how anybody could make a living picking a product that is so fleeting and ephemeral like a wild mushroom and rushing it to market. How could these guys living out of their cars, making camp in the woods, how could they possibly uh, make a living doing this? Uh, So I got on what's known as the mushroom trail, and I went in search of the shadowy harvesters who were part of this very much, uh, you know, a Northwest thing. Uh, So I went in search of them, and I found this guy. This is Doug Carnell. Doug is what's known as a circuit picker. Now, he lives on the Washington coast, where he picks mushrooms, but he'll also go down to northern California when the picking's good, or up to Alaska, or east to Idaho or Montana, Uh, basically within the geography of the greater Pacific Northwest. Uh, And he will follow uh, the mushroom flushes as they happen, uh, you know, day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. He's been doing it for 30 years. So I met Doug, and he became sort of my docent, if you will, to the woods and the wild mushrooms. So the very first time Doug agreed to take me picking with him, I met him out in Hoquiam on the Olympic Peninsula. And I could just hear my wife Martha's voice in my head. You know, within one minute of getting in his car, he was breaking the law. Now, those of you who are skilled at this, you might notice he's holding a crumpled uh, can there, uh, which doubled as a smoking device. Now, he was breaking the law a few years ago, I should mention. Maybe not today. Uh, But uh, that's pretty much the first thing that Doug did. And actually, uh, he would lose the can soon after and have to get resourceful the way mushroom pickers do and use one of the black trumpets that that he had found along the way. (laughs) So (laughs) we jumped into Doug's crummy Skylark and we drove north on Highway 101, and we headed into mushroom country. And pretty soon he got off the highway, and we entered the labyrinth of logging roads out there on the Olympic Peninsula. And uh, the road deteriorated from gravel to dirt to goat path, and then there was a big pool of water up ahead, and I didn't think the car could make it through, and he told me to hold my breath, and he gunned the engine, and we made it through, and 
there was a log across the road, and he parked there, and he said, okay, we're here. Now, when you think about people out there making their living in the woods and hunting mushrooms and doing that sort of thing, you might imagine really bucolic, scenic places, mountain vistas, old-growth forest festooned with moss, babbling brooks, that kind of thing. And occasionally that's true. But more likely, if you're going to go out with Doug and you're going to look for 60, 80, 100 pounds of wild mushrooms to sell at the marketplace, you're going to be going to this. You're going to be going to industrial timberland. And you're going to go to a place that has lots of young dog hair woods. It's going to be wet and spooky and dark in those woods. You're going to see a lot of leftover logging slash from the previous cut. And these places, they grow mushrooms like a crop. The mushroom pickers know where to go. They know where the best patches are. And so we got out of the car. Doug grabbed the implements of his trade, a bucket and a knife from the dollar store, and he said, follow me. So I proceeded to follow Doug. And one thing about being a commercial mushroom picker is you have to be efficient. You have to be fast. You have to move. And Doug's pretty long-limbed, and so I'm trying to keep up with him. Meanwhile, he's barreling through chest-high Huckleberry and Salal. There's no trails in this place. I mean, we are way off the beaten track. I have no idea where we are. I'm following him over hill and dale. He's carving the trail. I'm following Doug. And pretty soon, I can't really see him through the trees anymore. And then, a little while later, I can't even hear him. And it was at this point that I really heard Martha's voice of alarm (laughs) ringing in the back of my head. And I thought, she's so right. Doug's not going to reveal any of his secrets. These guys don't reveal secrets. They keep secrets. He's spinning me around in the woods of Washington, in the woods of the Pacific Northwest, and he's going to see if I'm man enough to find my way out. He's leaving me to die out here. And then, just as that paranoid thought crossed my mind, I heard his voice up ahead. Hey, where are you? And I chastised myself for not trusting. And I followed his voice. And I scrambled up through the woods to the top of this ridge. And there was Doug standing up there. And he had a big grin on his face. And he was just pointing. And I got up there and I stood up there with him. And he was looking down into a ravine on the other side of the ridge. And I looked down with Doug. And there, just as far as I could see... Hedgehog mushrooms, the creamy caps of one of my favorites of all the wild mushrooms. Such a delicious culinary treat. And there were acres and acres spreading before us down on the forest floor. And Doug, you know, with the laconic way of the backwoodsman turned to me and he said, it's just a small patch. And so I picked picked, uh, mushrooms with Doug for the rest of the day. And in fact... I got on the mushroom trail with him and realized what a sweetheart this guy really is. He might break the law a little bit, bend it a little bit here and there. But, you know, he also rescues stray dogs from the patch. This right here is Buddy Ramp, 
a dog that he found in the patch and made his own, and now he carries it through all the mushroom patches that he goes to. And so I would follow Doug for the next couple of years through the mushroom patches, and you can see Buddy Ramp right under his bucket there following along. And Doug would tell me everything he knew and reveal all the secrets and just allow me and uh, everybody that I wrote my book for to sort of enjoy this great place that we call home just a little bit more. Thank you very much. Yet another hard act to follow there. Uh, Tonight I want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, wild creatures that we share uh, this amazing place, this part of the world with. And I want to tell a story about the uh, animal that made those tracks. And those are the tracks of a bear. For me, there's a lot of wildlife adventures that start with footprints. And I want to ask you guys a question tonight to think about. uh, When you look at a wild animal and see it looking back at you, uh, what is it thinking about when it's staring at you, a human being? And this uh, became really a burning question for me when I was following the tracks of a bear, a bear uh, that I found while I was out on a trail run in the Snoqualmie Valley in eastern King County. And uh, it was the early spring, and I found tracks on the trail, and there was a big scat. The bear had been feeding on salmonberries. And so I stopped my run, and I started following its tracks into a salmonberry thicket, and Sawyer had just destroyed all these bushes eating salmonberries. And the tracks were quite fresh. So, of course, I wanted to keep following them. And the tracks eventually left the salmonberry thicket and went up into the forest along a game trail. And so I started following those tracks. And as I was creeping up this game trail, I looked up far ahead, and lo and behold, the bear was coming back down the game trail. It had probably been bedding down under a big cedar tree and was coming back down to feed, Right in front of me, there was a big log, maybe three feet tall. We were lucky to have some big trees here. So naturally, I decided to just duck down behind the log and see what would happen. And so now I couldn't see the bear, but I could see some branches moving and hear some noise as it's getting closer. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. And uh, eventually, the, the noise stops. And I see some branches move on the downhill side, and I figure it's gone down to the salmonberry patch. And so I wait for just a few more seconds, and I poke my head up just in time to meet the bear's eyes on the other side of this log as it's doing the same thing. Of course, it had no idea I was there. But we had this brief, and it was just a fraction of a second, uh, that our eyes locked before we both did somersaults backwards. And the bear took off into the woods, and I sat there just being like, whoa, that was pretty wild. I'm glad I still have a face. Um, and I did backtrack it and found where it had been bedded under a cedar tree before I went back, finished my run, and went back home. And uh, since that time, and before that as well, I've had the opportunity to stare into the eyes of many, many wild animals. But at that moment, I really wondered, like, wow, what was that experience for that bear? And... Every place that I've gone and had the, you know, just amazing opportunity to observe wildlife, when they see me, when they see you, when they see us, they look at us. And there's this, there's this moment where they see us, and it's, what are they thinking? And I know what I'm thinking. Sometimes I'm like, wow, that's really cute. That's an amazing animal, or like, this is such a great opportunity, uh, or I'm scared to death. 
whatever that case may be. Uh, but for them, I think, uh, you know, they're wondering what it is that we're going to do next. And it doesn't matter if it's a little mouse or it's a grizzly bear. They want to know what we're going to do next. And I realize that that is a burning question for animals all over this planet at this point, that, that their lives are in our hands. And in a small way, in this brief moment when we encounter them in the wild, they're wondering what we're going to do next. Uh, but in the bigger picture as well, they're wondering what's, what's next for them. And that no matter how big and scary they are or how exciting it is for us to see, see them, uh, this is a matter of life and death. It's not, their play, it's not their playground. It's their home. It wasn't just a place to go for a run and get some exercise for that bear. It was its kitchen and its bedroom that I just kind of trampled into looking for an adventure. And it's pretty sobering for, for me to think about that and to feel like I've been blessed to go and see some amazing animals in some very wild places here in the Pacific Northwest. So I just wanted to leave you with a few images here to, to think about that yourself and wonder what are those animals thinking when they stare at, at you. So, you know, I start and end my Fridays this time of year like this with a headlamp. In between time, in between time, I'm wandering around the Cascade Highlands. Now, Pat, Pat and the Total Experience Cosmo Choir, they sing in a church. The Cascade Highlands are my church. They're, they're starkly beautiful. They're bone-chilling cold. And they're expectant. They're expectant of winter storms and snows that I dearly, dearly hope arrive this year. The rest of my week, the rest of my week, I'm in Seattle. So my week, the arc of my week, really bounds, bounds what we do here at Forterra. We save wilderness and wildlands, and then we work very hard to make those places where we spend most of our time our cities, all they can be. You see, wilderness and cities are the flip side of the same coin. If we want to make sure that this place, the Northwest, stays the great Northwest, we need to, we need to save our wildlands, our farms, our forests. And we also need to make our cities places where all of us, each and every one of us, can lead a life of dignity, where we all feel welcome. So I know, I, I know, I know, I know, that is really easy to say. It's really easy to say, and it's hard to do. But we are a community of people who can. And frankly, this is the moment in time that we must succeed at both. And together, 
all of us together can do this. So now, we have just heard from, oh, I don't know, 20 voices, and that includes the dog too, and their deep dedication to this place and all they're doing to make it better. So now, please, please, let each and every one of us go out and do some good for the great Northwest. In the meantime, in the meantime, thanks for coming. Thanks for joining us this evening. Good night. That's it for this podcast of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This event took place at Town Hall Seattle on November 12, 2015. Thank you again to Florangela Davila for providing our recording. Tune in again soon for more from Speakers Forum. Speakers Forum.